handcuffing both me and my boyfriend. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, that was not in the police report. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. The Courtney double homicide case is a complex one, to say the least. We began with what seemed like a cut-and-dry case against Deborah Perringer. But the closer we look at the investigation, the muddier the picture of the case becomes. We're at the point in our work on the case where we need to start filling in the gaps ourselves. As you all know, I'm leaving tomorrow to head to Fort Worth to try to find some answers that are missing from the case file. And for that very same purpose, this week... I reached out to someone who I feel is a key witness, Dr. Margarita Abalos. I called Dr. Abalos earlier this week, and she agreed to record an interview with me. The phone connection wasn't great, and I want to say a big thank you to our music man, Shane Yoder, for cleaning it up and making it listenable. Here's Dr. Abalos. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dobbies have lowered the prices on hundreds of everyday products. We'll strap it to the roof. Making them feel uh, even greater. Remember, it's all in the knees. So garden tools feel larger than garden sheds. And lift! Find great value every day in store and online. Tighten that strong! After all, spring's a big deal at Dobby's Garden Centres. That's the shears. Now for the trowel. Oh, Dad! The best place to start is you were... What seemed to me when reading through the case files, you seem to be in, in a, a very key witness to the murders of Lloyd and Agnes Courtney. And I, actually, before I get into what you saw that day, did you actually know the Courtneys? I had seen them before in the yard, off and on. Our yards basically joined each other. And so that's where I would, I would see them off and on and sometimes wave to them. But I didn't know them like didn't know what their names were or or really anything else, you know, about them other than they were neighbors. So you never had a conversation with them or anything? No. Okay. I guess it's kind of a baseline. I assume then you did not know their daughter either? No. Okay. I didn't know they had until everything happened. Okay. So suffice it to say that you you have you had no dog in this fight, so to speak, in the fact that you know you're you're you you didn't know the Courtney's. You didn't know Deb Perringer. You were just a uh, just a just a neighbor uh, that only knew the your neighbors by sight, not even by name. Exactly. Okay. Can you walk me through the the day of the murders? What exactly happened, and what did you witness? I had I at the, that time had been working emergency, and so I would work you know the overnight, 
and then come home in the morning and then just kind of try and relax a little bit so that way I could get some sleep because I usually would have to be back at work that same evening. But on this particular day, I went outside uh, because my dogs were barking. And so they wouldn't stop barking. So I went out to the yard to go grab them because I didn't want any of my neighbors to, you know, complain about the noise. But, yeah, I went outside, went to the back of the yard, grabbed the dogs and brought them in, and that's when I saw a man in the yard. Okay. Now, was it unusual for your dogs to bark in the middle of the day? Yes. They're not, they were not, which is partly why I went out there to go check on them because they were not big barkers. And so I was just a little bit concerned about why they were barking. So when you saw the, uh, I think it said in the report, the reason you went to the back of your yard is because one of your dogs wouldn't come when you were calling him? Yes. Which is why I had to go out and get him and bring him in. Okay. And, and what, there was there a fence between your yard and the Courtney's? Yes. A chain link fence. A chain link fence? Yeah. So I can see, I guess he's straight into their yard. Okay, and and so you you saw this man. What did you what did you see? Could you could you remember enough to describe him or what you saw him doing? You know, honestly, I, I just remember him standing there, like kind of just frozen, and maybe he seemed surprised to see me, and he didn't say anything. You know, didn't just stood there, and you know, I just kind of stared and looked at him a little bit, and then grabbed my little dog that was barking and wouldn't come in. I grabbed him by the collar and then brought him back in the house and went to sleep. And then later on that evening, my boyfriend at that time, he had come home because he worked during the day. And so I had gotten up, took a shower, got ready, and then proceeded to go get us dinner and went out to the car. And why I remember this so well, it was November 1st. I remember this so well because I thought it was Halloween because I saw all these, what I thought were kids, walking around with flashlights. And it turned out not to be kids. It turned out to be police officers. And they were walking around the neighborhood um, with their flashlights. And they approached me and asked me about, you know, if I'd been home during the day. And kind of to my surprise, I said to them, um, this is very clear. And again, I'll be honest with you, I'm not quite sure why I said it, but I said to them, you're here about the my dead neighbors. And that's what freaked the police out. And they actually ended up handcuffing both me and my boyfriend. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, that was not in the police report. Yeah, initially they, they handcuffed us. And then, you know, they let us go pretty quickly after that. So we weren't in handcuffs that long, but they did, like I said, they did handcuff us and started asking me questions about where I'd been during the day, what I'd seen. They asked my boyfriend where he'd been. They just started asking us a ton of questions. They never did divulge, like, what had happened to my neighbor until they actually took us down to the police station. Okay, really? And had you told them yet that you had seen the man in the yard? Uh, yes, 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 yes. So how did the, um, if we go back to when you saw the guy, you said he was just kind of standing there frozen when you when you went into the backyard? He just looked surprised. He looked surprised to see anybody, but he just kind of looked surprised, which is like I said, why well, I kind of noticed him, 
And why is kind of wondering why is my dog barking at you? You know, kind of what are you doing kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And how would you describe him? Can you still remember what you saw? Curly, I remember dark, kind of short. I mean, I shouldn't say short. Curly hair. I mean, short like a man's haircut. Okay. Oh, and then I uh, remember that he was wearing like a uh, garage suit. I mean, like, um, you know, like, um, oh, goodness. You know, like a person who works in a garage, they would wear like a one-piece. Like coveralls? Uh, garage uniform. Yeah. Well, and not even overalls because they were long sleeves, but it was like all one piece. Okay. Okay. I, I think they would call those coveralls. Coveralls. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, that's a perfect word to describe what, what he was wearing. Like coveralls. Okay, uh, what color were the coveralls? Do you remember? Gray is what I'm thinking, but I, you know, that, in all honesty, I wasn't really focused on the color of the cover of the overalls or the coveralls, only that he was, you know, I remember he was wearing them. Right. Do you remember, um, I, I know it's been darn near 20 years now, uh, but do you remember, like, his, you, you said curly hair, do you remember if he was tall or short or... I can only base kind of what we talked about later on with the, the police was the, you know, comparing distance and height compared to, you know, they, they had a man stand out in the yard and ask him kind of, well, what did he look like in comparison to this man? And so the description of height, I gave them based upon that. And it was pretty, you know, it was detailed in the sense that they had somebody stand out there. I stood out where I had been and described to them the height. Okay, that makes sense, because that, that part is in the report where I think they said that the guy was probably around, if I'm remembering correctly, about 6'2", and the officer noted that she said it was about my height, that particular officer. Yeah, I, I'll i be on, completely honest with you right now. My, my memory's a bit hazy about all the details, but when I gave that report, I was very clear. I was very detailed. You know, what I told the police that evening was exactly what I'd seen that morning. Okay, right. And you had described, like as you said, uh, tall, thin, curly-haired, uh, like dark curly-haired, short hair, mm-hmm. um, and the blue coveralls, and, and you said you think he might have been wearing gloves, I believe. What, uh, again, whatever I gave in that report was very detailed because I, I remembered it very well that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I remembered it really well. Yeah, and it was that very day when they when you gave the description and you sat down and you yeah. and you, you did a composite sketch with them also, right? Yes, that, and and what you know what had taken place that morning again. I you know I it was it was detailed. I remembered I remembered that morning really well. I explained to the police officers. I didn't you know I came back in and went to sleep like nothing had happened. You kind of disappear from the from the whole narrative until right before the Courtney's daughter was arrested. And that's kind of, I was curious if during that time from, you know, after that day when you gave the interview and you did the composite sketch and then it was something, you know, that was in November and then it was in April when they arrested her. And in April, it says this when they came back to you and they showed you a photo spread, did they have any contact with you anytime in between there? No, they had no contact. I, I was, Honestly, I followed it on the TV. So they never, they never came and like tried to show you photos of anyone or anything. No, but, wow. no, it was very, 
and there was like almost no contact with me up until the trial. Right, and you testified at the trial. Yeah. So before the trial, right before they arrested Deb, they this says in the report that they came to your house and they showed you a photo array. It doesn't say what pictures were in the photo array other than they said they showed you a photo array that included a photo of the Courtney's daughter, Deb Perringer. So I do remember a few women being in the lineup that they showed me or the photos that they showed me, but I kept saying to them, I didn't see a woman or a man. Yeah. And that's, which is really interesting to me. And that's what we're, we've kind of seen in the investigation is they seem to be locked in on Deb and it was, for me as an investigator, it was pretty shocking to see that you described a tall man and they gave you a photo lineup with a five foot three woman. Yeah, they didn't, and I didn't even know the woman's height when they were showing me the pictures. Mm-hmm. They didn't tell me the height on any of the women in the pictures. And so what was that conversation like? I remember you, were you letting them know like, Hey, you know, why are you showing me women? I saw a man. Yeah. That I distinctly remember being kind of taken aback of the fact that there were women in the pictures because I was like, I didn't describe a woman's show, it was a man. And I remember them saying, oh, you know, couldn't it, couldn't it have been a, a tall woman, a uh, tall skinny woman? You know, they, were, they kept like, I don't want to say coaching me, but they kept trying to get me to say that it was a woman. And I kept, the whole time I was like, not what I saw was a man. And even at the trial, I remember the questions were geared about a woman. And like I said, that was not, you know, that's not what I told them when they first questioned me. That day that they questioned me and they took, they took I remember this very well because it's just me and my boyfriend down to the station. I remember it very well because my boyfriend followed, you know, in his car and almost, almost took down the, you know, the gates that close up and down. He almost knocked it over. So, again, I mean, there's things like that that I remember. So, it's not like my memory was, you know, shot. I remembered a lot of detail, you know. So, that's what's so interesting to me is that, I, you know, for me to remember so much detail and to be able to say to them that it was a man, not a woman, I really trust that. Yeah, and it, it, it and from reading the report and reading the transcripts from your statement, on that night, it doesn't seem like you had any question in your mind at all. You were very, as a matter of fact, there's a notation in the report that you said you were certain you could identify the person if, if you saw him. Yes. Yes. I was, again, I had, I had a lot of detail and you know, the details that I had were a man. Right. Who I saw in the yard was a man and I could even give them a time frame because I, had talked on the phone with someone and I, I went back and looked at my phone to what time that call had been, you know, had been received on my cell phone. So I had specifics on the time frame. Right. And that was noted in the police report too, that you were able to narrow down the window based on, on I think it said two phone calls because you know what happened after one call and before another one. Yep. What's what's frustrating is that you had such detail and you were so confident that you'd be able to identify anyone. And then you said for for five months, they never showed you a picture of anyone to try to identify. Nothing. I even remember having conversations with my 
family, number one, they wanted me to move because they were so horrified about what happened. And number two, they, you know, they were fearful because, you know, I had such detail about what this person looked like. They were afraid, oh, if you saw him that well, then he must have seen you that well. Right. Yeah, I'm sure that was scary. Yeah. Oh, you know, honestly, I moved pretty soon after all that happened. Oh, did you? Yeah, I testified. I flew back to testify. I was in Los Angeles by that time. Oh, okay. So you'd already moved before the trial. I moved before the trial, yeah. Which was why I was like, I wanted to contact them to find out, okay, do you need me? Do you need more information? What's going on? You know, I didn't hear anything back from anybody. Oh, yeah, and that's it, it's it's frustrating because you know there were a couple suspects along the way that were male, and it's just it's it's unbelievable that they never and they were also you know because you know Lloyd was a you know he worked for the police and they were concerned maybe there yes, was and that's you know it's so funny you bring that up so that is the other interesting thing you know remember I told you I thought it was Halloween that's why again I remember everything in such detail because I panicked. I thought, oh, my God, it's Halloween. I don't have candy. There's all these kids in the neighborhood with flashlights. You know, I vividly remember that. And, again, vividly remember, again, worrying about not having candy for the kids. Right. And there there was a huge police presence, huge police presence. Mm -hmm. And then I found out later that he was a retired police officer. Right. So besides a couple of suspects that came up, Along the way, the they had also looked into anyone that there was. Uh, Lloyd was was about to testify against somebody in a trial, and then they pulled up anybody that had been released from prison that he was involved in their case. And it's just it's just shocking that they didn't show you any of those photos to see if any of them might be the man that was in the backyard. None of that. They, you know, the only photos that they showed me were were women. And again, I kept thinking, why are you showing me women's photos when I told you it was a man? Right, right. Now, I, I, I sent you a photo earlier today. Did you have a chance to take a look at that? Yes, I did. Uh, what did you think about that? Was there any chance that, that that could have been the person you saw? Well, I was going to say it's very, very, it, it looks very familiar, um, especially the hair. The kind of the wild, curly hair. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of crazy that I remember the de- hair details so well, but I do remember the hair details really well. Although it was all, it wasn't gray; it was black hair. Right. Well, that photo was taken years years after that incident. Oh, okay, and that makes sense because the other thing too is there were wrinkles. This man definitely looks younger. You know, looks a lot younger than that picture. Right. Now, th- now that male, the man in the picture I sent you is a Hispanic male. Do you think the man you saw could have been a Hispanic male? I, it could have, you know, the thing is, it could have, you know, it could have been a white male with dark curly hair. Uh, it could have been, you know, a male who is half Latino, you know, or Native American, or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It could have very well been that that was a person of ethnicity, but, it, you know, at that moment, you know, the other thing too is the the person in the picture is darker, but again, this was you know in the winter time, mm-hmm. and you know, people were a lot paler in Texas during the winter. 
so that again, I that I wouldn't I wouldn't judge like ethnicity based on what I saw. Right, and I think what you described in your report, which makes sense, is that the man had dark hair and his skin was noticeably lighter than his hair. Yeah. So that that makes sense. Oh, that's that's interesting. That I mean, so I guess would it be fair to say that uh, you couldn't rule that person out as being the person you saw? No, I couldn't. And again, very, 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 the hair looks very familiar. The hair, the shape of the face, kind of a square face. And if you notice that uh, the description I gave to them, it was that it was kind of a square jawline and a square face. Now, did you see the ever see the composite sketch that was? created from your description? Did they ever show that to you? To be honest with you, I don't remember. I don't remember if they showed it. Because because what you just said is is right. The way you described the man in your interview has those features, but the, the composite sketch doesn't necessarily have them. You know, it was the, the face looked a little longer. I'm I'm assuming during the process they would be showing it back and forth. I've never done one, but you know I've I've I've, I've read about them. To be honest with you, I don't remember. I don't remember them showing it to me. Hmm, that's 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 interesting. That that actually would make a lot, a lot of sense. Now, do you ever remember? I don't see it in the report, but I just want to verify from somebody that was living in the neighborhood and watching the news at the time. Did they ever release that sketch to anyone? Did you ever see it on the news or anything saying hey, we're looking for a man that looks like this? I never saw it on the news. That's crazy. Well, uh, Margarita, I think that's all I need for right now. I, I may have some other pictures that I, I'll send you. Over the next few days, if I can if I can dig them up for, from some other suspects, but it's okay. It's it's interesting. The guy that uh, that I sent you that picture of was pulled over in the Courtney's neighborhood the day before the murders, and a police officer that was involved in the case saw him and said, you know, remembered him and said, hey, I pulled this guy over, and you know, didn't have a good reason for being there. Gave him the wrong name, wrong address. They finally tracked him down. But he said that it looked that he looked just like the man that you had described, and he was wearing blue coveralls that day. And but the police were so hung up on on Deborah as being the perpetrator that they never even looked into him. And okay, so Deborah is the daughter, right? Okay. Yep, and they were they were so hung up on her, and I'm not. It's not to say that he is the guy, but it's just another example of the very first thing they should have done was take you in. And have you take a look at this guy and say, was this the guy? I never saw anybody in person. I never did like a, you know, a lineup kind of a thing. I never did any of that. That's crazy. Well, this, this case is a, is a mess and, and you're, you're definitely a big help in trying to help, you know, piece some of it back together because it was, you know, the case was a mess and it, what it looks like in the, in the report is that, they just took everything that didn't point at Deb and just deleted it out of the report. Well, that, I'll be honest with you, that's how I felt at the trial, is that they took everything I said to them and they only asked me about, like, it could have been a man, you know? And by then, you know, what, six months had passed? Oh, it had been, been about a year. Oh, God, so it was longer than that. And at that point in time, I was like, I, you know, I kept saying to them, what I gave you that day was very detailed. What I'm telling you now is, you know, this many months or, I guess, years later, I, I wouldn't trust that. I would trust what I told you that day. And I was like, I remember that very vividly that day. 
And when you asked me those questions that evening, that same day, I had good knowledge of whatever it was that I'd witnessed that day. I had very good knowledge of it. I don't have that same knowledge at this moment in time. And that's what I kept saying to them kind of over and over again. But it was like, nobody listened. Right, right. They, they, they weren't interested in the truth. They were interested in what was going to help with their case. Exactly. That was the frustrating part for me, too, is like they weren't interested in the truth or what I saw that day. And again, I believe what I saw that day is the truth. My conversation with Dr. Avalos led me to take a little closer look into Emilio Villagomez. As I mentioned in the follow-up this week, I'm having a hard time hypothesizing how or why Emilio would have any connections to the Courtney's. From what I can find, he did not have a criminal record prior to the murders, and we have no indication that he knew Lloyd or Agnes personally. But with that being said, our goal is to answer questions, to fill in gaps in the investigation. What we do know about Emilio is that he was on Stadium Drive the day before the murders. We know that when he was pulled over that day, he was wearing blue coveralls. He didn't have any ID on him. He gave Officer LeBlanc an address that does not appear to be his actual residence. And Dr. Abelos cannot rule him out as the man that she saw in the Courtney's backyard. It seemed that, based on Hardy's notes, he didn't really investigate Emilio at all. Just one quick trip to his house, took a picture, and that was it. But listener Kimberly Ann Dinger caught something that I missed. In the handwritten notes, there are several entries where Hardy seems to be trying to track down a 1991 Lincoln. For some reason, when I was reading through the notes, I just skimmed by the entries about the Lincoln. My mind leapt to the car belonging to either the Courtney's or to Deb or Paul. Since there was no resolution on the Lincoln issue, I assumed that it was just a dead end. But what Kimberly noticed was that the 91 Lincoln was actually the car that Amelia was driving on the day he was pulled over by Officer LeBlanc. Suddenly, the Lincoln becomes, potentially, a key piece of evidence. Everyone is in agreement that whoever killed the Courtney's would have been covered in blood. That's why Deb's car was impounded and tested with luminol for the presence of blood. Presumably, the same would have been done with Emilio's car if Hardy had ever tracked it down. Originally, the detectives seemed to be using the vehicle just to track Emilio down. We know from the reports and notes that Emilio gave LeBlanc a bogus address when he was pulled over, so Hardy was trying to locate him based on the vehicle registration. And it seems from the email that I shared last week, that was no easy task either. If everything was on the up and up, a simple search of the license plate would result in the owner's address. But we have an email to Hardy from another member of the force that seems to indicate that he's having a hard time tracking down or even understanding what's going on with Emilio. Then we see in Hardy's notes that on the 14th of November, he went to 2500 South Jennings and spoke with a man who goes by the name Jose. His actual name is written in the notes, but I'm not even going to attempt to read Hardy's handwriting. Jose told Hardy that about three weeks prior, so about a week before the murders, he traded in his 91 Lincoln at Three Aces Auto. This is the Lincoln that Amelia was driving on Stadium Drive the day before the murders. Later that day, Hardy went to Three Aces and spoke with the owner. But the last line of that entry is cut off in our scan of the notes. But then we have another undated note that says the owner of Three Aces Auto, Victor Villapando, will check his paperwork and get back with Hardy with the bill of sale on the Lincoln. 
There's no notation in the report or notes that Hardy ever received the bill of sale, but I found it in my files. It wasn't actually sold to Emilio. It was sold to Hugo, the man who was present with Emilio on December 3rd when Hardy went to see him. Par for the course, the bill of sale adds even more confusion to the situation. So the previous note, the reason Hardy went to Three Aces to begin with, says that Jose traded the Lincoln into the dealership a week or so before the murders. But the bill of sale is dated April 22nd. So the paperwork says that Hugo bought the car in April. The notes say that Jose owned the car and traded it in in October. And either way, it was Emilio who was driving it the day before the murders, not Hugo or Jose. On the first page of the bill of sale document, is a handwritten note that says Hugo Villagomez, 3644 Travis, which is the address where Amelia was finally tracked down. There are also two lines redacted from that page, and under them are the words Silver Mustang. Then, on the actual bill of sale, Hugo's address is listed at 814 West Drew. Presumably, he moved to Travis Avenue sometime after he bought the car. But even the address gets complicated as I dig deeper into the files. There's a random police report in the case file that's broken up into three different documents. The first time I read them, they didn't seem relevant. The report is regarding a burglary at a house located four miles away from the Courtney's that occurred on October 29th, four days before the murders. The address for that offense isn't anywhere near the same neighborhood, and the complainant's name doesn't seem to have any connection to our case, so I moved on. But when I was reviewing the files again today, something caught my attention. The address where the burglary occurred was 3644 Travis Avenue. The address where Hardy finally tracked down Emilio. The complainant's name in the burglary was Amelda Avila. This is what the report says. Quote, On October 29th at around 12.05 hours, I, Corporal M.A. Shalafo, Working J-121 was dispatched to a Signal 10 burglary investigation at 3644 Travis Avenue. I arrived on the scene at 12.11 hours and I met with the complainant who spoke very little English. Complainant had left her house this morning at around 8 a.m. to look for a job. Complainant had locked her front door and returned home at around 11.30 in the morning. Complainant then unlocked her front door and entered her residence and noticed that her kid's PlayStation video game was missing from the front room. Complainant then noticed that several CDs that she had on her speaker in the front room were also missing. Complainant then checked the rest of her house and noticed that someone had gone into her room and took her jewelry case out of her armoire and dumped the contents onto the floor. Complainant indicated that she was missing several ladies' rings, necklaces, bracelets, and a man's ring that was located inside the jewelry case. I was unable to communicate with the complainant to find out if there was any other person that had keys to her house besides the complainant and her husband. Complainant indicated that she did lock the front door when she left the house and unlocked it when she arrived home. Complainant related that her neighbor that lives behind her had also been burglarized about two weeks ago. I checked around the house and along the front door and did not find any sign of forced entry into the complainant's house. I checked the deadbolt key on the front door and it did not appear to be tampered with. I also checked the complainant bedroom and front room and did not locate any evidence or items that would have identifiable prints. I provided the complainant with a copy of this report number and with a non-emergency police phone number to supplement this report if she needed to. Crime scene was not notified due to lack of physical evidence. So to sum that up, 
Mrs. Avila left her house that morning, and it appears that someone with a key entered the house and stole several items, including jewelry and a PlayStation. The reporting officer says that he was unable to communicate well enough to determine if anyone besides her and her husband had a key. A little over a month later, Amelia was found at that house. Noted as his residence, and based on last names, he is not Mrs. Avila's husband. Point being that it seems possible that Emilio may have had a key to the house. But, I'll also point out that there isn't necessarily any correlation between this burglary and the Courtney's murders. More than anything, it's just interesting to see where the trail of breadcrumbs leads. I guess the way I would phrase it, Emilio Villagomez Gutierrez is an intriguing character in the story. I would not go so far as to say that he is a suspect, but I also can't rule him out yet, at least as a person of interest. Working against Emilio is his proximity to the crime scene on the day before the murders, the fact that he was wearing blue coveralls, the fact that he gave police a bogus address, and of course the fact that Dr. Abelos, albeit 19 years later, cannot rule him out as the person that she saw in the backyard on the day of the murders. It also doesn't help that we have no indication that Detective Hardy ever looked into or verified Emilio's alibi. Working in Emilio's favor is a profile of the crime scene. The attacks seem personal and unplanned to me. The fact that the killer does not appear to have brought a weapon with them actually could be explained by a robbery gone wrong. Perhaps the intent was never to hurt anyone, but just to rob the Courtney's. But then there's that damn note. The note is the ugly duckling of this entire case. It's the one thing that doesn't fit. In my mind, I cannot see a perfect stranger to the Courtney's leaving that note as a forensic countermeasure. With no connection, the unsub would not be a suspect and therefore would have no reason to create a misdirection. In order to write the note, the unsub would have had to have known that Lloyd was a cop which is possible for a stranger, since his wallet with his badge in it was taken. But again, that doesn't explain why the note was left in the first place. Emilio, in my opinion, requires further investigation. But based on my interpretation of the crime scene, if we don't find some kind of connection between Emilio and the Courtney's, then he will be ruled out as a suspect. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood-Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. 
For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. And Mike can be found at MurbGaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Baking pastries at 5 and open at 6. 100th cappuccino by 8, 200th customer by 9, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our Stay Connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. Sky Fiber only, 30-second 4G activation or one-off credit. New customers, Pro Plus packs only. T's and C's apply.